We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. TickPick should be your first choice to buy basketball tickets because they save fans money by never charging any service fees, ever. TickPick is the exclusive ticketing partner for the Laker Film Room Podcast and Blue Wire Network. What do you think about the Laker team now? Do you follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined by Mike, no Darius today. And I had the honor of attending my first Laker game as a Laker employee on Friday night. Unfortunately, we did not get the result that we all wanted, but it was fascinating, Mike, to see the game from a different perspective. We were sitting in the same row, uh, baseline level, a little elevated, a couple rows up, but... Before we get into the the Lakers, I just want to talk about like the perspective of sitting there. And basketball is so fascinating to me because you see totally different things from there versus the TV angle versus the overhead angle versus the slash camera, which is like kind of diagonal. You see, that's great for fast breaks. I was really struck by how well you can see body language and the speed of the game, but it's also difficult kind of because you're on the baseline to see the depth of the sport, right? Like sometimes the fast breaks kind of have a two dimensional quality. They're either coming at you or they're coming away from you. You've been sitting there for years, Mike. Uh, That's, I'm curious, your thoughts of watching a game before we get into the Lakers, just from that perspective of sitting along the baseline up close, but not always having that, that words eye view as Chick used to call it. Well, here's the, Good news. You don't need my perspective anymore, Pete, because now you've sat in the exact same (laughs) row. So you've heard you've heard my thoughts on that before. Let's let's let me answer your question with a question, which I know is not a, a typical fair thing to do. But since you have been so used to watching it a certain way, right, what stood out to you watching it from that spot? So the the body language, it was great watching LeBron. I feel like I uh, so it's the physical components of the game, right? It's it's the for example, when I walked in, they were warming up and it was Shondi Brown, Kent Bazemore and De- all warming up. 
for before the game. So it's about five o'clock. The game doesn't start for another two hours. And I walked by and, you know, I've been I've been a Shondi proponent, like at least hopeful of what he can do. And I still am. But I walked by and I was like, oh, he's shorter than Bazemore. <laughs> right? that, that gives me a little bit of a different perspective on what kind of player he can become. Right. He is about six, four, six, four, four and a half or so in reality. And then watching like LeBron's facial expressions and I I, because I've been to games and I've I've even sat in the lower bowl to watch LeBron and I let's start with him with the with the Lakers having not seen him in person for a couple of years and then being so close I was struck by the that's not the LeBron that I remember and not in the respect of he doesn't jump as high but there's a certain like barreling down the court a certain presence that he had where the the he made a lot of unforced errors in that game and it struck me as I know like fifth and sixth gear LeBron and I don't expect that to come out in November or excuse me I don't expect that to come out in December but the level of kind of working his way into it that stood out to me I don't know if that's something that's stood out to you but that's not like the LeBron even the locked in regular season LeBron that I'm used to you don't have to twist my arm to start with LeBron. Of course, he is the most important piece still. And one thing that stands out to me, and I think this is correct. I'm double checking as we speak. I don't believe he's played four consecutive games yet. No. This year. Yeah. And and so it's a mix of things. But first of all, when you see LeBron in person versus sort of versus just watching on TV, he is still huge. Yeah. Right. Like that's that's one thing. So you mentioned Shawnee Brown, but LeBron, his physical presence, um, even I'm just saying standing still like when you walk by him. Right. He is a a sight uh, to behold in that sense that, okay, this is somebody that that is going to be able to physically impose himself. Now, when you're talking about the like comparing him to the last time that you saw him in person, for me, it's a little bit more difficult because I haven't I've been seeing him in person for most of that stretch minus the bubble. So it's kind of like when I go out of town. And if I'm out of town for two days and I get back, the kids basically look the same. But if I'm out of town for a week, they legitimately grow. (laughs) Sure. And (laughs) legitimately. And I'm especially especially the baby. And I get I'm like, wow, like he's at least a half an inch taller um, from when I got back there. So there is that element probably for you that's a bit striking. But I, in my own mind, am trying to wait until I get a good at least two weeks, let alone a month of him being able to start ramping up. Cause I think that since he does this whole, I talk about this sometimes he does the 365 day thing with his body. He's got, I think he's being at least somewhat careful not to go into the, the complete full gas pedal down explosion burst. Not, not because he doesn't trust that it's there because I think he, he doesn't want to get injured by, and that's again, the difference between a 21 year old that can go out in the court and just sort of play like that all the time. And and somebody like him that has all of the experience. So and I also think, Pete, that this is part of the reason why the Lakers are 12 and 12, you know, not just in the games that he's missed, but the games that he's played, because those are the types of games where if it is a game, the Lakers have to win. For example, the playing game last Mm -hmm. year, you know, then you're going to get the pedal down uh, and you're probably not going to lose. And and so that's 
that to me in some ways defines the whole season so far. Yeah, that what you said about him being careful, the word gingerly came to mind when I was watching him run, that it was just watching him run up and down the court was a different experience in that you could tell he was being cautious in certain ways. And he certainly picked his spots. And he's one of those guys, Mike, where he's going to get you 25, 8, and 7 in his sleep. It, but there's there's like different versions of that. And there's one that can really dominate a game. And then, then there's one that's not as impactful. And he's not as... As impactful right now and I think you're very much on that track in that he's ramping up he's trying to make sure that his body can sustain and get through the whole season uh that said, that was a winnable game, man. That one was right there, and we made a lot of mistakes throughout that game. And a lot of his mistakes in that game, aside from the, oh, you know, he's running the floor differently than I remember. Like, defensively, he loses Hartenstein on a, a, a fake handoff, and he goes in for a dunk. There were several defensive plays where it was like, LeBron, what are you doing there, right? And so I, I think that part of that, he talks about, like, not liking to play a lower minute load. I think that part of that, like being so ginger about how he runs the floor and all of that. I think I saw some, I saw him less locked in, less aggressive, less focused on the game as well. Well, he acknowledged that after the game. And that was one of the first things that he said was that I played like shit uh, on defense. (laughs) Uh, If I think I'm directly quoting him there. Yes. You know, some of the mistakes that you mentioned, just the not finishing, he was nine for 23, which is not a LeBron line that you'll see too often. And so all of that was true, but I still didn't think that that was the reason that they lost the game. In fact, not to move off LeBron, Pete, but overall, there was some stuff that I was actually pretty encouraged by Mm -hmm. where. So the Lakers were 13 for 21 from the free throw line. You know, Davis, especially seven for 11, missed a couple in the fourth quarter. The Clippers drilled three straight threes. One of them was a really good play call. Um, that it, where Luke Kennard sort of slipped to the strong side. They were expecting him to slip to the other side. And so you, they all gave Ty Lue some credit for that. The other one was a pretty good contest by AD um, on its, uh, the same type of plays that they've done hundreds of times to beat teams down the stretch that he happened to hit. And then Morris banks in the three. And so just, just that alone, like the Clippers, some shot making down the stretch, they earned that. Like they earned that win by hitting some tough shots. Whereas watching the Lakers play the Pistons last week in the three OT game, they didn't look that much better than the Pistons. You know, they, it just wasn't a, and, and that wasn't the only game. There were several games where they were kind of finding a way to win, but they looked like they were even with teams like Sacramento. And that, this is the first time they played Sacramento, mm-hmm. right? And of course, then they looked better in the second half. But since that second half and then going into this game, this was more about LeBron having some rust and also I think still just being, you know, being a little bit frustrated, understandably so, for what went on where he goes to Sacramento has a false positive test instead of then testing because the first test that he had was negative. Instead of having another test, he basically gets quarantined solo um, onto a plane. Then he has to quarantine his family. So he was just mad and not, not as focused. uh, I think as LeBron typically is, even though, as you said, he's still able to go 23, 11 and six with two steals. And so it's just a, I'm giving him a mulligan, I guess, is the way that I want to put it. And I'm real curious now going into Boston, where he has had a couple of days. Um, he has now come off this type of performance. Like, I expect LeBron to play really well uh, in this game against Boston. And I am I wonder if you shared, we could take a, a break and get this on the way back, Pete. I wonder if you shared any senses of optimism there um, from where the Lakers are now compared to where they were a week ago. 
I do. Yes and no. I'm going to fill in for Darius just briefly. Yes and no. I do share that optimism. Let's take a break when we come back and we'll get into that. Lakers basketball is finally back. And there's no need to exhaust yourself by searching all over the internet to find Lakers tickets anymore. Because TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, is the original no-fee ticket site. And the only one you'll ever need as your go-to for all NBA tickets. TickPick got rid of all those awful service fees that other ticket sites charge, which lets them guarantee the best prices on all their NBA tickets. Don't believe it? If you can find better prices on the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in purchase price. I'm excited to see this Lakers squad get out in transition this year, and there's nothing like seeing a great fast-breaking team in person. Visit TickPick.com LFR today and use promo code LFR to save $10 on your first order of Lakers tickets. Are you looking for ways to skip the trip to the post office and dodge all that hectic holiday shopping traffic? Why not save time and money with Stamps.com? Stamps.com lets you compare rates, print labels, and access exclusive discounts on UPS and USPS services all year long. It just makes sense, especially if your business sends more mail and packages during the holidays. Whether you're selling online or running an office or side hustle, Stamps.com can save you so much time, money, and stress during the holidays. Access all the post office and UPS shipping services you need without taking the trip and get discounts you can't find anywhere else, like up to 40% off USPS rates and 76% off UPS. Save time and money this holiday season with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code FILMROOM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter the code FILMROOM. My optimism comes from, I thought our floor game was better than the Clippers, right? Like, to your point in that first segment of there being games where it's like, oh, we don't look that much better than Detroit. I thought we looked better than the Clippers. And, and mind you, we did not lead once, right? So this can be a, a maybe a silly, homerish point. But we looked for... <laughs> I want to get into the starting lineup at some point. Maybe we'll get into that in a few minutes. But that, when I think of unforced errors, like that's one of them, right? The idea of that lineup, the starting lineup of Russell Westbrook, THT, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and Dwight Howard is a lineup where I, I even told you there, I was like, I'm, I, I think the lineup is fun. It's one of those lineups where you sit and like, okay, what could be the fastest team we could put out there? What could be the strongest lineup that we could put out there? And that's the answer to that question, right? Is every single position is somebody who's just physical as hell, who can beat you up. And I think that when you come to the idea of your starting lineup being a group that sets the tone, I think that's very much something that that Vogel wants to set that tone is we're going to be a physical team. I don't necessarily think we are that team, and the problems really come to roost on the other end of the floor, where in that lineup, LeBron James is the best three-point shooter. I don't think LeBron James should ever be in a lineup where he's the best three-point shooter. The second best three-point shooter in that group is probably Russell Westbrook. There should probably never be. No, who's, no, who's, the, who's no. the better shooter in that group? Anthony Davis is still a, three a better three-point shooter. I Yeah, yes, then Russ, I know the – take the percentages out. I'm just saying if if the ball is going up, and AD shoots it or Russ shoots it, who do you think is going to make it more? Right now, Russ. For, Absolutely, okay, Russ. Okay, so for me, for me, that's AD. So we can just we can just disagree on that one. So, and THC is really struggling from three, though. So I guess, yeah. So I guess Russ would be 
number three there, but yeah. Yeah, you, you, the best argument is to say, no, Anthony Davis, who's shooting 17% or whatever he's shooting from three, is he's the second best yeah, shooter. The argument, he, your argument wins either right, way. You know what I'm yes. saying, right? Like, yes, and, yes, and so yes. for me, AD's a guy who's either shooting like 15% or 40% and nowhere in between. So yes, like the that version of Anthony Davis that is shooting 40% on a regular basis, he shot that from like January on in the championship season, right? So, well, this, this is where I do the whole... Just throw the percentages out a little bit, like Stu, right? Sure, if sure. Stu is watching Anthony Davis shoot and Stu is watching Russell Westbrook shoot, I, I just think the the shot itself and the and the range and the follow through and all that kind of stuff. That's what I'm saying when I think that Anthony Davis is better. But the your point is made by the fact that we're struggling over the argument sure. between <laughs> sure. Westbrook and AD as being the second best three. Yes. For sure. So and, Ellington or Monk is better. AD's shooting form is something we could talk about as a whole another side topic. He's somebody for me who's either right or he's not. Either way, from a shooting perspective and a spacing perspective, that's a group that's that's a rough group, you know, and this, the Clippers, for their part, they started a big group too. Now, the difference is their bigs, a Serge Ibaka, a Marcus Morris, those guys can hit threes, right? Whereas ours are either a non-shooting Dwight Howard or a very much struggling Anthony Davis and or a very much struggling Taylor Horton Tucker. And so that that right away, like that idea of setting the tone that to me is an unforced error just with the lineup. Like I get it now. That's a lineup where, hey, wouldn't it be fun to see that? But as a starting group, the Russell Westbrook, LeBron James, Anthony Davis trio, if they play about 20-ish minutes per game and the starters comprise about 12 of that. So that idea, we've talked so much about the 80 at the five and the spacing and all of that. But really that that group, that AD and Dwight group, I think we're like a minus 15 or something like that on the night where the rest of the every other group was a plus 11. And now that's going to vary from game to game. And obviously Dwight was remarkable in that Sacramento game. But that starting group, Mike, is somebody a group that I was curious about, but not one where like, especially where we are as a team kind of struggling to find what we are. That's that's a rough group for me where I, I would very much like to see an Ellington there. It's a very interesting group. And when the when the lineup was announced and Frank actually said it in the pregame, which he doesn't always do. And then you and I together walked over to Ty Lu, and he shared his starting lineup. And we were like, what? Yeah, What year is this? Because they went giant, too. Right. So it was Jackson, George at the two, Morris at the three, Abaka and then Zubats, who ends up only playing 22 minutes, kind of like Dwight. So those guys basically cancel each other out uh, in terms of really minutes and production. Uh, You know, Zoo had a couple more points, but impact wise. And here's the let me, let me give you a little bit of a counter perspective first, even though if I were going to select a lineup, I probably would just swap out THT for Ellington mm-hmm. um, or even Monk, you know, in, in who's been amazing. He had what, 16 in the second or do you have had, 20 he had in the seven, half? at least 17 in the second half? Yeah, here's the, the kind of flip side um, when you're when you're looking at like, why would they why would Vogel go with a specific uh, type of lineup like this mm-hmm. and and yes as i stall yeah monk had all 20 of his points in the second wow. half so there's no real spot to attack defensively on on this one like sure you can pull dwight howard out to you know with a screen or something but that wasn't something that was that was going to hurt you with this clippers specific group uh, and they are a not only are they a jump shot dependent team but they are also one of the league's best three-point shooting teams so what i thought they stayed, they maintained the lead and throughout the whole game by basically just really shooting the ball ridiculously well. Abaka's three for three from three. 
that shouldn't happen. Even though he, even though he's a good three point shooter, he's not going to go three for three many. Part nights. of that is from unforced errors, though, right? Where he's like Serge Ibaka, if he's alone with his feet set and he's feeling comfortable, he's going to knock those down, Mike. Right? Like so, some of that. But is even us. so, you you can't some, but you can't bake in three. For, and then Marcus Morris sure. is six for nine. Right. Okay. Baking uh, from three. Yeah. Yep. Kennard comes in and is five for eight. Now, the little bit of the flip side is that Paul George was 0 for 7, but part of that's because that was the guy that the defense was shifted to. So all of Paul George's attempts were pretty difficult. And that, I think, that is the, that's the math that you're banking on, if you're Frank Vogel, that has worked pretty well over the years, that you can't, you can't target one of our guys. We're going to get stops because of this group. And then that's when you see Westbrook in transition, THT in transition, LeBron in transition, and then AD with Dwight as kind of the trailer, that's a super powerful transition team, but we didn't see it end up working out that way too much. They only had seven fast break points mm-hmm. for the game in part because the Clippers shot the ball. So, so stupidly well, 16 for 35 from three. So if the, this is one of those things, if the Clippers just hit two fewer threes, basically the Lakers win this game, you know, like that. So that was the difference to me, even though I'm, I'm not, I'm saying I would agree and probably switching and getting one shooter in there. But if you do, then that's the guy who you're targeting defensively with Paul George and, and they're able to do things a little differently. And that's fair. That's in terms of the targeting. Although to start the game, Russ, Russ started on Paul George for at least parts of those possessions. And depending on how you want to defend him, it's one of those things for me where you either start Talon or you start Dwight. But starting both causes some catastrophic problems on offense, right? Because one of the things that teams are going to do against our transition attack is they're going to send fewer team, fewer, they're going to send fewer of their players to the offensive glass. Now, that's one of the tactics, right? The other one is to crash the glass, which we've seen throughout this year, and we've given up a lot of rebounds there. But the Clippers very much focused on, hey, we're going to get back. We're going to get back in transition D, and we're going to play some phone booth basketball where we're we're big, they're big, we're going to make sure that the spacing is clogged up. And this is something we've seen throughout the beginning of the season. And that's how I think when the first sub was made, it was like 13 to eight. And we always, we always start games like this, Mike, we always start games with like eight points. Like how many times have we been gone, gotten off to a good start? So when we talk about setting the tone, like this like DeAndre Jordan and Avery Bradley is not that different to me than Taylor Horton Tucker and Dwight Howard as a combination next to our big three. And for me, we're so far into the season now, 24 games into it now. I'm, am I seeing what I want to see in thinking that like, I get the idea and the concept behind it, but these groups are, they haven't performed well. All of them are minus net rating in many cases, like double digit net rating where to me, it's obvious that that's not the shape of our team. That's not the that's not a natural look for us. But am I seeing what I want to see there? I mean, so you it definitely puts it puts me in a tough spot to argue against when the numbers are clearly showing the the, the opposite, right? So I, which is why again, I I like the idea too, like you do, mm-hmm. um, of of starting that one shooter in that spot. But I'm just trying to understand the theory. And the and sort of trying to understand Vogel's perspective on the defense and and if you give a group like that some actual time to play together, then you know then it's something that would work. And in this case, the offense was really pretty good. They scored 115 points on 50 percent from the field. They got to the free throw line 21 times. They just they missed free throws. They missed a couple of key shots, like the one that Monk had with a minute and 30 left that would have put them up to 
you know, and now, but then when you say that, Pete, it's like, well, he also hit four threes and two of them were ridiculous contested step back style. So you have to, you can't just put some on the board and not take off another one. That's That's difficult. So I'm not trying to argue against the theory that you've essentially been arguing for the last several months, right. And, and go through, go through that whole thing again. But let me, let me try to get at this another way. So DeAndre Jordan, right. Is now, is now on the bench and Dwight Howard is, is starting. So that that part alone, I'm curious if we're now going to see, well, one center is playing, but does that mean that he has to start? Are we going to see like Anthony Davis start some games at the five and really check how that is? Or is, is Frank now really committed to this one center, but but that center is going to start as opposed to play? He can even play some of the similar amount of minutes mm-hmm. off the bench, right? He played 21 mm-hmm. in this one. You could give him a you could give him a first half shift and a second half shift where he's about 10 minutes both times. That might be a little long, mm-hmm. you know, especially coming off the bench. But that that part of it to me is curious too, because do is it the which spot of those is more potentially flexible? Is it and I'm thinking it might be Dwight's spot in starting AD at the five more because Frank has said pretty consistently that he wants to give THT a real chance to show if he can emerge as this defensive type guy in that unit on the perimeter where he's guarding. He's the one that's going to be guarding guys, at least until Ariza gets back to some extent. So I just I he's had opportunities to take THT out and put a shooter in. And so that's where I'm wondering now if it's the if it's that big man, that center spot in order to get to the optimal offensive lineups that we keep discussing that has the chance to be more flexible. Yeah, let's take a break. And I, I want to talk some more THT because in person, he's somebody who stood out as well. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So again, watching the game that up close, it's really the physical attributes of the game that shine through more than they do on TV. And Talon's abilities on the defensive end, so he struggled, he missed open threes. He's, I think he's one, probably the player that is offensively hurt the most by playing alongside lineups that have rough spacing. Because like LeBron and AD and Russ have all been stars for so long that they can get their buckets and they have their own pet moves and pet shots that they can get to in pretty much any NBA situation that's going to present themselves to them. And that's really what getting older as a player is about, really, is mastering the scenarios. There's a finite number of 
just types of plays that you face from every individual position in the NBA. And after a certain amount of time, you've done every one of them in game, not just practice, not against, you know, your teammates or against college players, but against NBA caliber competition at game speed. At some point, you've done it enough to where it's like, oh, I've done this so many times. I know exactly how to react to it. And so Taylor doesn't have that type of experience and that he makes a lot of recognition mistakes that are on the basis of like, oh, no, you actually should have done this here. He's also lacking a pull up game or a floater game that I think would be a wonderful compliment to his driving to the basket. That ability when the defense is back on their heels and like, oh, crap. And he made some great drives, especially in that second quarter um, in some clever finishes around the rim when he was able to get there. Teams are going to play him for that. So he has to have a counter. He doesn't have that. All of that said, I was very impressed by him on the defensive end. His ability to, he's the, the toolsiest perimeter defender that we have outside of our stars. There was a play in uh, in the first half in one of the LeBron at the five lineups. I want to talk more, you know, in another pod about, you know, defensive coverages in the LeBron at the five groups, but he went over the top of the screen and was leaning on the back of Eric Bledsoe. And it reminded me of Danny Green, Mike, those, that wonderful back pressure. He's easily our best back pressure guy. I thought he got a hand up on Paul George and bothered PG a few times in those one-on-one matchups. And that's the first time I've seen him win an individual matchup against a taller go over the top of you. Like DeRozan got him. Who did we play after that? I think it was Tatum got him a few times where, and we'll see Tatum again on Tuesday. Um, but I was really impressed with his physical tools while also like he's struggling offensively to find his way and find his place within the star lineups. And then when he thrives, it's the bench unit. And he's really, I see him, Mike, as a pure pick and roll type of guard. Like think Jordan Clarkson with a very different way of going about scoring. He's not going to make crazy, you know, reads as a passer, but he can hit the roll man. He can get to the bucket. So he's very much like, that was one thing that stood out for, uh, for me offensively is that he's at his best when the game is loose, when it's not in a phone booth, when it is, you know, high ball screens, let's get downhill, let's go to the basket. So anyway, just a lot from Taylor, but he's been struggling lately, Mike, and he missed one of them threes. And I saw him turn around and, and cuss and like, he was so frustrated with himself after he missed the, the last three that he missed. Um, what are you seeing from, from Taylor, who's obviously pressing? We'll talk about offense first and it's not difficult to see what opponents want. Just look at his shot chart, okay? Four for four at the rim. 0 for five away from the rim. Mm. Four of those shots were threes. Uh, Three of them were above the break wing threes on the right side of the floor, which is, you know, where he's positioned in that lineup. And then one was the corner three. Most of the threes are open. So what teams are doing, it's compounded. And this is where, Pete, the part that you're talking about with the lineup makes a little bit of sense. And again, Frank Vogel and the Lakers are aware of this, but they're thinking that the trade-off is still better mm-hmm. for because a lot of the stuff that he got at the rim was in transition um, or at least semi-transition. Right. Coming up the wing, that sideline you know, side yeah. break, secondary transition. Yeah. Basically, any angle, right? that you give him to the rim, he will get, he will get there. He's got all sorts of gathers, can gather low, gather high, rip through all the, yeah, exactly. So anytime the defense isn't just set, right? Like he's going to have an advantage. And, but the, the issue becomes in the half court where the guys that are on the floor next to him include Russ, include Dwight. And again, I think this builds to your point. And then even to an extent, LeBron or AD, who are the guys that, what are you going to do? You're hoping they take a jump shot over the Mm -hmm. top of you. 
So it's this, it's as packed of a paint as you can have without just having defensive three seconds, which by the way, does get called on teams playing the Lakers every yeah, single game. It's funny. At yeah. least once, you know, uh, and it has to, because that's what they're, they're all right around the paint. And they're kind of like, one of them just forgets that their foot is in there. And they're yeah, like, that's oh, right. damn it. That's exactly <laughs> what happens. But that's, that's the game plan, right? Yeah. Is that we're going to crowd that paint. Yeah. So, so like we get it, we, we get what, what's that, that's what it is. And they should be able to win games regardless. But the whole question with THT is, is that defense of upgrade that you get between him and, you know, either Ellington or Monk, is that worth it? And I don't definitively know the answer to that until I, just like Frank Vogel, until I see it for more, but this was the issue and why we thought Bazemore was going to be the guy that started the season. Because he was the guy that was going to do enough offensively from a spacing and knocking down shots perspective and in transition, et cetera. But we knew that he could tar- he could hold up defensively, which I still think he can. And it's now become like this linear choice between THT and one of the shooters. Whereas Ariza now, as if if and uh, if he comes back and is able to be the Ariza that everybody hopes and expects him to be, then you're kind of met with that choice again, where it's like, all right, well, this guy. We know he can do all the all the little things really well, all the glue guy things really well. Uh, but then, you know, what do you lose from a from that offensive creativity getting to the rim thing? Maybe you don't need You've when LeBron and, a, and Russ sure. are out there. So it's a it's this it's why this roster is. So we've had how many of these conversations because there isn't a one hundred percent answer, right? Whereas it's it's uh, even if I think that we agree on what on what it would look like, um, I'm totally. I'm at least understanding of why they want to give this some additional run and see what THT can evolve into and and see if he if he can just hit one three out of those four. Sure. You know? It's like I don't it's like if he's gonna take four threes, this is the difference between twenty five what I'm not gonna do the math thing again. But yeah, you <laughs> No, get no, that's absolutely the case. That said, THT again. I see THT and Ariza defending different players. It, slightly different, but different players, right? Ariza is more suited for our taller guards, but he's not laterally that quick anymore. Like the idea of putting him on Paul George, Paul George would go right by him. Of course, he could contest nice and high on those jumpers, but he didn't have the lateral quickness to be able to do that. And so seeing THT get a win against a guy like Paul George defensively, Actually, that's a good point, though, because so Ariza is more of like a Dwight replacement. That's that's where I'm going. Exactly. Right. And then AD at the five. Right. And so that's the thing is that it's not so much that I like Taylor. I even like Taylor with the starters, even though it I am somewhat contradicting myself in that idea of you need spacing around the big three. You also need defense. Your point about like us starting that way was like, well, what are you going to put LeBron on Paul George and have him chase LeBron all around in a. December game? No. Are you going to have Russ on him? And we did at first, uh, but Taylor got the lion's share at least of of the touches or of the possessions on on Paul George with that group. So like Taylor has a great deal of utility for this team on the defensive end, and it was very easy to see in person. We don't have another guard that's really good at at that type of back pressure or leaning on a guy, or he gets low in that stance and gets his hands you know one hand out and one hand up in in good defensive position. He makes some recognition mistakes and that's going to happen as a function of his age and will hopefully improve as as he gets more experience but that will be a weakness of his right so but to me that makes the idea of the fifth guy being able to space the floor in some way even and that's why like just Ariza's ability to like Ariza can make 34 35 percent of his threes and you have to guard him that's the thing that was it was such so interesting to me Mike to see 
two very big starting lineups because they were about as big as we were. Maybe not as strong, but they were a very tall starting lineup. And but their guys can. Yeah, they're bigger. Yeah, actually. They're, yeah, yeah. No. Right. Yeah. And. Yeah. They, but they can make threes. That's the difference, right? Like, is a, and I see, I get the point of like Trevor Ariza. If you want to play the drop coverages in a physical defensive style, then Trevor Ariza becomes especially important with that group. I would argue that that's not what this team is built to play outside of a couple of lineups, of which that's one. And, you know, so we should diverge when we don't have the guys. But, so I think THT is necessary, but then that Dwight spot becomes really, really important, Mike, that that guy can at least be a threat. And you have to guard a Trevor Ariza. You have to guard pretty much any other guy aside from DeAndre Jordan on the team. And so when you talk about the trade-off, the trade-off, I see them as, I see it as a package deal that those other two spots, we tried Bazemore and DJ to start out. We're 0 for 2 on that so far, right? THT has moved in. We'll see how that develops. Dwight has moved in and all that. But I think that one of those guys has to be able to shoot. Or as Vogel says all the time, and I keep citing Vogel here, just to, you know. no. It's important that we understand. I can I can complain about what I want to see until the cows come yeah. home. We got to understand his perspective. So he's often saying that vertical spacing is just as important as perimeter spacing, and that is the one spot where Dwight doesn't actually give you as much of the vertical spacing mm-hmm. anymore as the idea of Dwight being there, even relative to DJ even relative to certainly JaVale McGee mm-hmm. a couple years ago where anything oh, yeah, there, he's going right, to JaVale mm-hmm. is going to catch. Yeah. And so that, that to me is, is the, is something that I want to ask Frank Vogel about a little bit more specifically, but it's, that's one of those things that's tough to ask because you don't want to say, well, Dwight's clearly lost a step and isn't, but <laughs> sure. like, there's, there's a way to word it, right? There's a way to word it. It's like, Hey, look, uh, Hey Frank, do you, are you noticing a, a difference maybe in the vertical spacing, you know, from Dwight as he, you know, as he gets to this stage of his career <laughs> and are you still able to play the same sure, way? You know, sure. there's some way that it's, you can't help but get around. Look, the guy's not jumping the same anymore. And you just don't, I don't want to put him in a position where he has to answer that, but I think it's an important thing to get his perspective on. If that's, if we're all agreeing that he's not going to be able to just go up there and give you that same level of threat uh, because so th- that I want to kick that basketball theory back to you. Um, and see if you're seeing that same thing, and if that's part of the part of the reason why it's harder um, to have him as the guy that's just you're going to plug in and start every night in that spot. If you're also using a perimeter player like no, hundred percent. And there were some there was a game against the Knicks where we started out the second half running a lot of what are called short pick and rolls, and it was a high ball screen. This is when LeBron was out. It was a high ball screen with LeBron and AD, and DJ would sweep to the side that Russ was driving toward. And what that does is that opens up a lane for for AD. Well, part of what makes DJ a threat that you have to track on that play is he's sweeping from one dunker spot to the other. And if you don't guard him to send that second body over to, to uh, you know, that second body over to AD on the roll, then it's a strong side dump off to DJ. And it's one step and he's going to dunk on you. Dwight can't execute that dunk anymore. Also, that lob thread on those high ball screens, say Dwight is in that position, the AD is in on that play. 
if you're throwing that up in the air, you can run your no roller behind coverages, which means that you don't have to send resources from the other side of the floor to help out on that. That's one thing with AD. Do you remember that play, Mike, where we were playing Miami, one of the one of the highlights of the season so far, the game against Miami. And we got a lob to AD where Duncan Robinson came over and he saw it and he jumped with him, but they just couldn't quite get up there. And it was, you know, AD catches it, dunks it home. I think it was an and one. That's how teams have to defend AD when you've got that role threat that and even with DeAndre Jordan in there too teams will send that guy from the weak side what does that open up that opens up a shooter on that weak side of the floor right but if you're kick but that when I talk about the defensive decisions that's exactly what I'm talking about Mike is that you if if it's like oh do do I choose to make it harder for DeAndre Jordan to complete an alley-oop or Avery Bradley shoot a three, like that's an easy choice for me, right? Or Taylor Horton Tucker shoot a three versus Dwight. And that's the thing with Dwight is that you don't have to devote those resources from the weak side, even the way that you do on DeAndre Jordan. Now you can go under screens too. Basically every defensive decision, if I'm the defensive coach, is easy for me against that lineup. And and because that's another step where Dwight's not going to catch those lobs the same, same way that DJ does. So, Pete, I, I want to sneak in a point about Westbrook, if I could. Please. And so Westbrook only took eight shots, which I thought was interesting in its own right. It's got to be a season low. I mean, I'm trying to think if, like, if he's, has he ever taken less than, <laughs> less than eight shots? So, yeah, the previous low was 11 um, so far on the season. And he took two threes, as you pointed out earlier, uh, strengthening your Russell Westbrook is a great three-point oh, yeah, shooter. Yeah, yeah, he made that. both of them. <laughs> That's what I'm making. He was yeah, two for yeah. two. Uh, from he was Sniper. two for two from three, and exactly sniping. And how many? He only had two turnovers. So nine assists, two turnovers, eight attempts overall. Only two threes. He was two for five in the paint. He actually missed three shots at the rim. Mm-hmm. And in like one of them was in. You mentioned this, I think, early. Like Russ is going to miss some layups. Okay, he always mm-hmm. does. But his. His usage is my main point here was like that was really interesting to me because in, and again, the Lakers as a team shot 50 percent overall. They got to the line plenty like their offense was mostly fine. And I, I liked that Russ stayed disciplined in that way and that that was encouraging to me, even though I, I don't think he's going to take this few of shots, but he was really committed on offense to just trying to fit in. Mm-hmm. and. I just thought that was noteworthy. It, did you? No, what did I you think see? that's been the case. I think since uh, for quite some time now, there are there are some games where he's the open guy. It's really just about reading the basketball scenario and being like, should I be the person taking this shot or should this go to a teammate? And it's just about correctly reading those situations where the Clippers were so committed, so devoted to taking away the paint that, especially in the non-starting lineups, which played really well. Again, they were a plus eleven. Every other lineup except the starters uh, were, were plus eleven in that in that game. And uh, it was a matter of, okay, I'm not the guy, but I could pull up here, but I also have Wayne on the skip, or I've got LeBron on the weak side, right? And so I'm going to make that cross-court hit ahead that I, I think, I don't think Russ gets enough credit for his game management. And I think that a lot of his teams have needed him to be a little bit more 
to absorb more usage in a way that this team does not need. So I'm curious to see how this develops, Mike. Is is this something that becomes a quasi-regular thing when the game scenario calls for it, where Russ is going to keep his foot off of the gas? Because I thought he managed the game very well. His biggest mistake was down the stretch, I think about 90 seconds left, posted up, I forget who it was, and then hooked him. And Mello was like, hey, yeah, pull it Reg- back. Reggie Jackson. Yeah. And Mello's yeah, like, pull it back, calm back down, to, calm down, yeah. let's get something better than this. Yeah. And that that was a big mistake. But all in all, the his game management, I thought, was very... Um, I, I don't entirely like it. I like the you know, blazing Inferno version of Russ. Uh, but it's nice to see that he has that and has that sort of uh, judicious approach in him, right? And knows when to use it. So certainly worth tracking. I didn't see the, I didn't see the mellow reaction thing. Did you notice that live or did you see that on? The- yeah, yeah, I saw mellow. So he was posting him up and mellow was on the wing. I believe it was. And mellow said, mellow was like, he made some gesture, something indicated to me that it was like, Hey, calm down, like pull it back a little bit. The same gesture I was probably making <laughs> in my head. Exactly. Yeah, like- exactly. Like, yeah, yo, yeah. okay, because I loved how he pushed it in right. transition. That's right. great, but okay, it wasn't there. there. Go give the, give the ball right. to LeBron. That's right. Give the ball exactly. to LeBron. Exactly. Because you did it so well for the whole rest of the game, but it's like that. that's the other part of the low usage that's tough, right? Like whenever – it could be the same thing if it's me, you, and Darius on the podcast, and you guys are going back and forth, and I'm like kind of sitting here, and I'm like, do – do I need to speak? <laughs> like just the subconscious. Are you low, you know are you mean? low usage Westbrook on the pod, Mike? No, uh, please, yeah. man, I really shouldn't have set up the analogy like that. Um, but the larger point is when you're not being used and you've been used to being used, right? Like then you're, there's going to be that instinct sometimes. And, and ideally, it's not in the wrong moment. That happened to be the wrong moment, you know. Or he could have just not hooked him. Sure. And then dribbled, right, and kept the dribble. But yeah, whatever. It was it was a frustrating game in that sense that they did a lot of good things. Uh, and yet they they did – the Clippers did hit just enough shots and the Lakers missed just enough free throws. Yeah, so we, that's and in, even in beyond out. the free throws, there were so many unforced errors in this game. Like just plays where we, we shot ourselves in the foot. So in some ways that's encouraging because you can control that. Uh, in other ways, it's something that we've done a lot this year. So hopefully we can uh, we can swing that trend. Got the Celtics tomorrow. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with a general NBA pod. But until then, you've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. James has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires. It's good. The Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. Three seconds left. That next to the winner. It's on the way. Good. Kobe Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds. Shot with his eighth block shot that ties an NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans okay, sticking so around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe, hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's the score. move. Two, one, miss it. It's over. And shot clock now to five. Bryant. Yes. And that was a little tough to Albert Gentry. Add insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic. 
Trying to disrupt Rondo. He puts it in. Here's Davis. 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.